Well, here we are at the end of our series on the kingdom now. We've been exploring Matthew 5 uh, throughout our first few months as a church. We looked at part of it way back at the very beginning, back in April. We looked at those first verses known as the Beatitudes, and then we, we jumped to the next part a few months later, and we picked up and we looked at these things that Jesus is challenging us with that, that seem to extend the law in a certain way. We, we go from, for example, that you shouldn't murder to that you shouldn't think things that are angry towards one another. And each of those, I use that word extended very carefully because he's not really extending the law. What he's trying to do, what he is doing, is boiling down the law and helping us to see the heart behind it. He wants us to be thinking in terms of, what does the law really tell us? What does it tell us about the heart of God? What does it tell us as far as if we're going to be the kingdom, if we're the church and we're taking this message of the gospel forward to the world, what does that look like? And tonight, as we wrap it up at the end of chapter 5, it's not the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we will come back to that in a future series, but as we wrap up this chapter, Jesus is going to tie this section up for us and help us to think about what it really looks like to proclaim God's message of love. And it's challenging. Because God challenges us to a world that isn't just nice and, and squared off, black and white, super simple. We just deal with certain people and we try to avoid other people. He's challenging us to go into a messy world, a world corrupted by sin, with the ultimate cleanser for that mess, but that means we have to be in the mess, and, and we don't like that. We want to take the, the law of God and boil it down in such a way that it's really easy to know exactly what we're supposed to do. Jesus wants to challenge us. Sometimes it's really so much easier when, when everything is just cut and dry and simple. We have different light switches in this, this building, and, and you presumably have different kinds at your house. You more than likely have a lot of light switches that are the kind that you just flip up and down or rock back and forth, right? Maybe if you're high-tech, you have the ones that you can turn on and off using a smart device, but it turns on and off, on, off, on, off. Very simple, right? But then we get the dimmer switch. You may have one of those in your dining room, right? supposed to be able to add ambiance, right? You, t you turn it down a little bit and then the candles glow a little bit more noticeably and everything feels a little bit moodier and it's wonderful if you don't have really good hearing. But I can hear high-pitched noises very clearly. And one thing I have learned is that I hate dimmer switches because in that muddiness, problems occur. A lot of light bulbs aren't well designed to cope with dimmer switches. And so you start to turn it down, and I start hearing, and, and everyone else is just happily having dinner, just talking away. Oh, isn't this nice, so nice and moody and, and pleasant? And ah, the ambiance, and I'm thinking, and I just think, let's just turn it on or off, on or off, because it's driving me nuts. God's calling us into a world that has a lot of dimmer switches and into a world where there's a lot of high-pitched noises going. And we're hearing that, and we think, God, can't you just flip it on or off, on or off? It'd be really nice and simple. Someday it will be simple because it'll just be good. God is going to make everything right again. But in this moment, he's sending us into a broken world in which all the light bulbs are screaming, and he wants us to go into that 
and not demand a light switch that doesn't actually fit the moment, but to realize we're going into this world of dimmer switches and be willing to tolerate that, that piercing sound, that discomfort that we experience, that we can help bring people to a day when all the high-pitched noises go away, when all the dimmer switches are set into a nice setting that doesn't cause anyone distress. And so as we go to this last section of chapter 5, let's go ahead and come before our God in prayer, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to be a people who love. We'd really like some nice, clean, simple laws, things that say, well, I can love this person and not love that person. I can respond just with utter contempt when people act a certain way and, and, and love in other certain ways. And, and you command us to something much more complicated. Because you've sent us into the world to be your ambassadors. You've sent us into the world to show your love to a world that's dimmed. Lord, would you help us to see how we can do that in our own lives tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44 to get started tonight. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you hear that high-pitched noise yet? Can't we just love those who love us? And if there's someone who's an enemy, if we actually have that title on somebody, can't I just say, I don't need to love that person. I mean, come on, that person's an enemy. He or she's an enemy. Come on, Jesus, why are you making me actually have to, to love that person? In fact, in, in the time that Jesus was ministering on earth, there were different communities that had separated from the larger bulk of the of the Jewish people because they said it wasn't pure enough. And they extended the law just as Jesus refers to people having heard it said. Because if you think about it, if you've read through the Old Testament, or if you've read through some of the Old Testament even, you might be thinking, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That doesn't sound like an Old Testament quotation. And you'd be right, that isn't an Old Testament quotation. So what's Jesus referring to? Well, these communities had separated, for example, the one at Qumran, they had covenants and people would join this community as a, a people who were going to purify and help usher in the new age because they were going to obey God's law more perfectly. And they would actually command people, love the light, love the people who are in this community, who, who are, are awakened to the truth, who are following what, what God has said more fully than all those other people but hate the people in the darkness. Don't have anything to do with them and just hate them because if you hate them and you, you pull away from them and you say, I don't want anything to do with you because you don't get it fully, it makes it really simple to know who's in and who's out, doesn't it? You say, if you sign this agreement and you become part of this community and you're following all these laws just right, then you're part of the light and we love you. But... You're not quite there. We just hate you. Simple. Now again, this isn't an Old Testament command, but, but people who, who had heard these messianic-type preachers who were coming and saying, it's time to, to revive God's kingdom, it's time to make everything right, were saying things like this. Maybe people would have thought Jesus was going to say the same thing. So when he says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, 
he's not shocking the people, even though it's not in the Old Testament. People had heard this kind of thing. And in fact, while well, most people wouldn't put it quite that bluntly, most people would say, well, if God commands me to love my neighbor, it would make sense then that I'd hate my enemy. And I have to have some contrast there. The light switch has to be turned on for some things and off on for others, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll love my neighbor. I'll hate my enemy. Of course, I mean, that's just plain and simple. What does Jesus say? He says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And notice there he's, he's ratcheting it up because not only is he saying that we need to, to love our enemy, then he goes to a particular kind of enemy, someone who persecutes you in the faith, someone who says to you as you're trying to hold on to God's word, I'm going to cause you trouble because of that. And he says, what should you do for those people? Not only should you love those enemies, you should be praying for them. Bring them before the Lord. Ask for God's care for them. Is that our first reaction when we encounter an enemy? I tend to think usually not. We talked about rights last week and how we want rights and how we try to grab on to rights. And, and part of what we do with that then is to, to have an excuse then, you violated my rights so now I can hate you. You violated my rights so now I don't have to love you at least. You violated my rights so I certainly don't need to pray for you. If you've been in a situation where, where you, you confess Jesus and you, you tell it to other people, maybe in the workplace they learn that you're a Christian, they learn that, you, oh, you go to church on the weekend, and, and this person is a militant non-believer of some sort, and they start to try to get you in trouble with the boss, they, they try to get you so you don't get promotions, they try to maybe get you fired, how do, how do we respond to that? At school, and someone learns that you, you're, you're a Christian. Oh, i got to make sure everyone else doesn't want anything to do with you because you're one of those people. How do we want to respond in those moments? Jesus is challenging us to love those people and to pray for them. And in this, he's reminding the people not of something new, not of, of a revolutionary new idea. Hey, you had the Old Testament and it said this one thing, but, but now think of something different. He's reminding them just of what God had told them all along. Take a look at Exodus chapter 23, verse 4. Right in the Torah, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And... If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So Jesus is referring back to these sorts of principles we find throughout the Old Testament. And what the Old Testament basically is, is saying here, it's not purely interested in livestock, but what it's saying is, if you see the, the thing that your enemy depends on to live, because livestock, for many of the people, most of the people in this culture, they, would, they were depending on that livestock to do work in their fields. Maybe they were going to butcher it for food. Uh, but the, the livestock were essential. You, you lose your livestock, you die. 
There isn't, you can't go down to the welfare office and apply for some food stamps and some, some unemployment benefits and so on. Th- that stuff isn't there. You, your ox wanders away. You don't have anyone to plow the field. You're in trouble. So Jesus says, when you see your enemy and, and you see something happening to your enemy that potentially could really give your enemy the comeuppance, you know, really, they'll, they'll get what's coming to them. What do you do? You stop it from happening. Take that ox back to the person who everyone would agree you should hate. Everyone agrees should, you should have nothing to do with these. This is a bad person, right? What do you do? You help them out. Show them love. We talked last week about the golden rule and, and how that filters in, and that's certainly filtering in here because, I mean, if, if someone hates us, we would like for them to still treat us nicely. But somehow we never think about that when it's the role reversed. Jesus is saying, what you're building here, when you're helping, when I'm I'm calling you to build my kingdom, looks different. You're not building up walls of hatred. You're tearing them down and showing my love. Sometimes we don't even realize what we're building. We don't understand the weight of what's happening as we build it. I I was reading about a house that was built, I believe, in 1952 in Beirut. Apparently, a family owned a plot of land, and they, two brothers inherited it, and some roads had been built, so the land had kind of gotten partitioned in a weird way, and they couldn't agree how to divide it up. And the one brother got stuck with this little, almost useless piece of land, while the other brother had this, this large piece of land with a beautiful ocean view. The only problem for the brother with the beautiful ocean view is that the brother who, whom he had forced into that little useless piece of land had an idea. He built the grudge house. Now, you, you might be saying, well, where is it? But if, if you look here, see that thing that looks like a wall there in that picture? That's actually a house in front of what was his brother's house. He built the, one of the tiniest, the thinnest, the thinnest w- houses in the world and he did it so th- for one reason to block his brother's view of the ocean so it is actually a house you could actually live in it people have actually lived in it at one point it's, it's much wider but it gets a- as narrow as like three feet wide at one point he's just using whatever he can of that property for one specific purpose to make sure his brother can't enjoy the ocean and so he built that in 1952. Now you can go online and, and type in into Google or Bing, you'll type in the grudge house, and you'll, it'll come up. And then I started looking. There are apparently houses all over the place. There are now historic sites. They're known as spite houses. They're like this, where people have gotten into arguments and built a building specifically to spite someone else. And now it still stands. You know, I, I don't know what ever happened to those brothers. I don't know that anyone does. Nothing I read reported that they ever resolved their dispute. But their dispute had a lasting impact. It devalued the property that no longer had an ocean view. And now today, people are still talking about these two brothers and their argument about how they couldn't decently divide up that plot of land their family had. A lot of times when we're feeding that hatred that we want to feed against our enemy, when we don't want to show love, what we're doing is we're building blocks to something that we don't necessarily know. We think it's just, oh, this is just something going on in the moment. Sometimes we're building something that lasts. Last for years, last for generations, just like this house. 
If you ask that brother that built the grudge house, if, if he wanted to build something where 70 years later people would be talking about how he had a terrible grudge against his brother, I'd like to think he probably would say, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to stop him from enjoying that ocean view in the moment because he wasn't treating me right. But it's still there. It'll be there for the foreseeable future because new laws have come into effect that actually make it almost impossible to tear down that grudge house. It is fixed. And so often when we, we play into our human nature, when we play into what a lot of the world says we are perfectly able to do, which is to, to love our neighbor but to hate our enemy, we're building these lasting monuments to something really horrible. Jesus says, tear them down. Do something different. And what he wants us to be thinking about as we approach other people is not to think, what do I feel like doing? What do I think that person deserves? But what has God done for me? And to see every person that way, to look at that person and say, what has God done for me? I want to do that for that person. What is right, not what do I feel like? We say, but Jesus, that's really, really hard. It's easy with, you know, the person who maybe cut us off on the highway or, or butted in line at the store. We can kind of get over that. But what about the people that have really, really hurt us? What about the people, and probably all of us have had someone at least in our lives, if not some ones, that have really deeply hurt us, where years later you remember something and it still causes your heart to ache. It still feels like that stab in the back is still a fresh wound. And those are the people that Jesus wants us to be thinking about. What are you going to do with them? Are you going to look at them like I look at them, or are you going to look at them the way the world says you should? We say, but Jesus, there needs to be a limit to this. Okay, I'll, I'll love the people that are in close proximity to me, even if they're really annoying, even if my neighbor, you, you know, is just a, a really, really hard to deal with person, I can deal with the person next door and, and I'll, I'll try to show love to that person. But I need to, I, we need to limit this. It can't be too widespread, okay? Can I have a deal, Jesus? Is that, is that okay? Jesus says, no, you're, you're, you're ambassadors of my kingdom. And, and you can't just hunker down and, and, and kind of say, okay, I'm going to love in this certain sphere. Maybe it's the sphere of the church. Okay, some people in the church rub us the wrong way. I mean, all of us, if we're together long enough as a church family, we're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to step on each other's toes. We say, okay, I can, I'm going to somehow press through and love the people around me even when they step on my toes in the church. Jesus says, think bigger than that. Say, I can love my neighbor next door. Jesus says, think bigger than that. Maybe I can love my coworkers. Think bigger than that. My, my, my fellow students at school, think bigger than that. He wants us to think bigger than our inclination is. Because our job isn't to hunker down into a safe little sphere of love, but to go out and spread holiness, to spread his kingdom. And that's what he goes on to point out in the following verse. Take a look at verse 45 of Matthew 5. Why do we do this? He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus says, it's easy enough if you, if you limit it enough and you, you find ways to get out of it. And that's what I think we often do. We don't probably, generally speaking, want to say, okay, I am going to hate certain people now. Most of us know that doesn't sound right. We just kind of let ourselves get there by withholding love and the things that we say to people so that we can kind of chip away at this, this command until suddenly it's much more bearable. Okay, maybe I'm not fully showing love to people. I'm doing an awful lot. Doesn't God see that? Doesn't he see how much I'm doing here? But it's not a mistake that we saw in verse 44 that Jesus refers to those who persecute you. What can be really more difficult to, to deal with than, than coming to follow Jesus, making that a core part, hopefully the most core part of who we are, that we are followers of Jesus and someone's persecuting us for it. Someone's persecuting us for following the, the, the word of God and proclaiming his gospel. I mean, if you're going to talk about someone who's going to really attack us for something that's going to really hurt, what hits more deeply than that? Jesus says, those people, those people you need to show love to. Not just, not just the people that, that somehow get a promotion instead of you. Not just the people who, who you know, kind of drive over your lawn as they're pulling into their driveway. Not just the people who have the dog that always has to use your lawn as a, a rest stop. Not those people. The people who are really going to pierce your heart. Who are really going to hurt you. And, and Jesus brings it out by, by pointing out what God himself does. What does the Father do? The Father makes the sun rise on both good and evil, Jesus says. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, two aspects of what give us life. If we didn't have any sunlight, we wouldn't last very long. Not because we are able to do photosynthesis ourselves. That'd be kind of nifty, but, but we're not able to. But we depend on plants, right? You take away all the plants in the world, no, no light, it's just darkness. And what would happen? Well, we wouldn't have any vegetation to eat. All the animals that we also consume would die. We would die. And we'd feel really, really miserable as we went along that way. And yet what does God do? God is the God of the whole universe. He could choose to have little spotlights follow around his people and leave everybody else in the darkness, but God doesn't do that. He, he provides light to everyone. And what does he do? He reigns on the just and the unjust. And, and sometimes we misunderstand that phrase. We, we think, oh, it means everybody has, their, uh, has rain on their parade, right? And that's not what Jesus is saying. Because what, what do we need? We need light for, for crops to grow. We also need rain. And if you live especially in a place like the Holy Land where there isn't a ton of rain, you become all the more aware. I, I suppose if uh, we were doing this out in California, we would really probably recognize this all the more too. If you live someplace out west where there, there's massive drought, we'd really connect with this. And certainly the people that hear Jesus saying this would connect with this. Rain isn't a curse, it's a blessing. Rain is the thing that keeps you alive. What does God do? God provides the rain the just and the unjust. Why? 
But he loves his people. He loves his creation. Who better than God to withhold love from those who have done him wrong? No one. He's perfectly holy. We're not perfect. Yet we won't withhold our love. And yet God provides the very things to allow someone to keep going in life, even when they thumb their nose at him. And Jesus says, if you're going to be in my kingdom, if you're going to be sons and daughters of the heavenly Father, what are you going to do? You need to recognize this is what he does, and now you need to bear the family resemblance because your mission, your job, is to actually tell people about him. And you can't do that if you're acting in a way that doesn't look at all like him. You can't do that if you're not valuing the same things that he values. This narrowing that we try to do to somehow get out of doing this on a widespread scale is the the very thing we're not going to look at tonight, but if you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of our favorite parables oftentimes. It's it's a wonderful parable. It gets an ugly truth when it really comes down to it that Jesus is pointing out, which is that the the most religious people that he's ministering to, the ones who who know God's law backward and forward are busy trying to find ways not to love someone in need. And so he takes this Samaritan, one of the enemies, one of those people that you're supposed to hate, and has him show love to the person in need. What's he getting at there? He's, He's getting at this same principle, that to look like the Heavenly Father, what do we do? We show love even to those who in our minds clearly don't deserve it. It's much broader than, than our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's much broader than our local church. It's much broader than the church in the United States. It's much broader than the church in the world. Who's our neighbor? It's the person that God places in front of us in a given moment. And, and whether that's in physical proximity, it's on the telephone, it's on the internet, whatever it might be, whomever it is that we're interacting with at the moment, Jesus wants us to be thinking about, how do I love that person? Back again in the law, in Leviticus 19.33, it says, When a stranger sojourns with you in, in, the, in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God brings it back to who it is that we are. Who is it that we are? We, we are people who need rescue from God, and so he wants us to see everyone, even the sojourner, even the person who, who comes into our community and isn't part of it, even the person who comes into our state and do, doesn't understand the, the traditions and customs and the necessity of loving the St. Louis Cardinals and, and so on and so forth, even that kind of person, we love that person. Now, there's a tough assignment in the midst of this, which is that we're called to, to, to love, but not assimilate, not to become part of everything that it is that makes those people our enemies. If it's right at all that they are, quote, enemies, right? I mean, sometimes people, they are persecuting us. They are doing wicked things. And, and so we, we think of those people as enemies, and, and we aren't supposed to to connect with them by doing the same things. Oh, I'll now persecute people. I'll now mistreat people. I'll pick up all the excesses of our society. Instead, what Jesus wants us to do 
is to come in and to permeate a culture that's deeply broken and to offer something different. Here at Little Hills, if you, when you come in, we'll make sure we'll all offer something to drink if you'd like. We have K-Cups. If, if you didn't already know that, we have K-Cups for our coffee maker. And, and K-Cups are, are really pretty nifty things if you think about it. Uh, you, you have these little sealed up things. It keeps all the pollutants out. It keeps everything nice and clean and, and they last a really long time and you have your coffee grounds in there and they have a, a filter and it, and it keeps everything ready so that when you want a cup of coffee, it's going to taste fresh and it's going to not absorb, say, the odors of the refrigerator or, or the closet or wherever. If you've ever had freshly ground coffee and it sat there for weeks and weeks, it, it doesn't taste very good any longer. It's gone stale. This protects it. This keeps it fresh. And if you think about this, this container, it's sort of like God's Word. God's Word contains us and holds us in so that we're not picking up all the odors and, and, and the oxidation and so on of the world that, that, that would corrupt us and would make us actually very unpleasant to encounter. The problem is sometimes we want to stay K-cups. We want to stay right in here. Because we, we know it's safe. We're, we're staying fresh. Nothing, nothing's getting to us. But it, it, how many of you have used a, a Keurig, and used a K-cup machine? Yeah. Uh, a lot of you have. And if you have, what does it need, what needs to happen to this K-cup? Puncture. Puncture, yes, yeah, exactly. You're going to put it in, and it makes that really satisfying popping sound, and you know, ah, oh, coffee's coming. Because the coffee isn't doing me any good in here. And isn't that the wonderful thing about coffee? I love coffee. And so here is coffee that has come out of its protective enca encasement. It can be enjoyed. And maybe when you walked in, you even smelled a little bit of the aroma of this. And, and so what, what you do is you puncture the K-cup, right? Or K-cups, as the case may be. And then you have your coffee. Oop, if I can aim. <sighs> mm, refreshment. Yeah, this is good. And, and if it stayed in that K-cup, it's not refreshing me. God wants us to stay purified by his word, but he also wants us to pour out into the world. And what the K-Cup's designed to do is to take that pure coffee and pour out just pure coffee flavor to improve the situation outside. And that's what we're called to do. To be purified by God's word, protected by God's word, but then to take God's word and take his call to love and go out into the world and to show that love. To, to, take, to take these mugs of coffee, freshly brewed, to a world that's sleeping, that doesn't want to wake up because it's just miserable, and offer it re the refreshment of fresh coffee, of, of fresh refreshment that's even better than coffee. God's love. As good a coffee as God's love is even better. Yeah, set this. Uh, okay, thank you. Spilled coffee isn't so good, though. Thank you. Thanks, Commander. <clears throat> we need to keep the impurities out. We, we, we should stay in God's word. We should do whatever it takes not to become like the world, not to become all the bad things in the world. Because if the coffee goes stale and is awful, that's no good anymore. We, we talked about that earlier, thinking about saltiness. Jesus 
challenged us to stay salty, for example. But then we need to go and we need to season the world. We need to, to bring refreshment to the world. Keep the impurities out, but bring the purifying love of God out too. Not keep it in. And when we think about these prayers that Jesus calls us to, it's a part of that. Jesus is challenging us to pray for the people who hurt us most. Because what do we know about them? We know they're hurting, just like we're hurting. What do we also know about them? That God loves them. And we're called to be people that help them to know that. And may it never be that whatever's happened to us would prevent us from helping someone to receive the refreshment of the gospel. May it never be that we're so busy looking at how things affect us that we forget the desperate, hurting world outside. And there's something amazing about this command that Jesus gives to pray for our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us. I remember I, I was doing an internship right after seminary, and the pastor who mentored me, wonderful, wonderful man, th- this is one of those things that he, he was teaching that stuck with me ever since. He said something about praying for your enemy. And he said, you know the thing is, he says, I, I like to challenge people it sounds unbearable to keep praying for your enemy. So all I'd ask is consider praying for your enemy for 30 days. That's an interesting challenge, right? It's a little more reachable. They said, here's what's going to happen. If you sincerely come before God and pray for that person every day, and, and your prayer is more than, and God brings fire down upon that evildoer, right? You actually pray for them. Pray that God's grace would be in their life. You pray that God's love would be experienced in their life. You pray for blessing upon them, that, that they would actually experience God's blessing. If you do that for 30 days, you know what's going to happen? It's not going to make you suddenly feel like everything's okay on that person. I, I wish I could say it did, but it doesn't. But it's going to start to change your viewpoint towards that person. It starts to challenge us to think about people how God thinks about people. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Jesus doesn't set a time limit here. It's not really 30 days. But if it sounds too unbearable, start with 30 days. Take that person. If you're thinking of someone right now, oh boy, that person. Take that person and pray for them for the next 30 days. Pray for their blessing. Pray for God's love and see what God does. Because as Jesus challenges us here at the end of this chapter, He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's Jesus calling us to? He's not calling us to works-based salvation where we're going to make everything right in our lives. And, And he makes that clear over and over again in his ministry. What's he calling us to? He's calling us to experience the purpose of our lives. That word could be translated, go and do what you're made to do. Be perfect in the sense that you're completing the mission that God has given you. And that mission is to be like our Heavenly Father. And what's our Heavenly Father? Our Heavenly Father is the one who loves. And so we too should show God's love. We need to keep that in mind as a church, as a body of believers. What is our mission? Our mission is to love people. To teach God's word, yes, because that's part of love, right? We're not loving people if we say, well, I I love you, so I don't care what you think. I don't care if you know Jesus. I don't care if you know what it looks like to to live like Jesus. That's not what he's saying. To genuinely love them, to want their good. 
too often we just forget our purpose and we go spiraling out. And that's how you end up with things like love your neighbor and hate your enemy that, that was being said around the culture of the time and basically implied in our culture today. Can't forget our purpose. I read this week about something. Interesting is maybe the wrong word for it. Did anyone else hear about how Boston University has managed to genetically engineer COVID? They, they, they've managed to take the, the spike protein from, I believe they took the spike protein from the, the Omicron variant that's been around the last year or so that's super contagious and attach it to the original, more deadly version of the virus. And they, they, they made it a really fascinating discovery when they did this. They took mice, and while mice that got infected by the original died 100% of the time, they could make a more infectious version that still managed to kill mice 80% of the time. And so now, in their lab, they have this version of the virus that we've been battling for the last two and a half years that can kill more people more effectively because it can spread faster. Now, you have these bio labs and their purpose is to keep it all contained much more securely than I hope this K-cup ever contains this coffee. But I still wonder, as I think about purpose, have they remembered their purpose? I mean, what? I understand they want to understand the virus better, but if the, if the purpose is to, to bring cures and to heal people, maybe it's the wrong idea to create a deadlier version because... We already know that those sorts of things have in past times over the decades leaked out of labs. And we really don't need that. And I kind of think they've lost a, a sense of their purpose. That they should be focusing on things that make us better, not things that kill us. We lose a sense of our purpose too. And, and, and in a horrifying way, it's actually deadlier than that modified version of COVID will ever be. Because as we as the church lose the sense of our purpose, we might stay all nice and contained like this K-cup, stay all nice and safe, but we're allowing the virus of the world of sin to spread around the world all the more like wildfire while we stay in our little spot. We need to remember our purpose, which is to be those who bring the kingdom now. That remember that our God is a God who's loved us even when it doesn't make sense. And so we're called to be a people who love others even when it doesn't make sense. To love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to love those who mock us for what we believe, to love those who would seek our harm. doesn't make sense, but what does make a great deal of sense is to recognize that we don't deserve God's love either. But he's given it to us. And as those who carry the kingdom forward, we show it to those around us too. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this is hard as we wrestle with this. We think of past hurts, maybe present hurts, things that are long at least resolved and things that have ongoing effect. And it's hard to, to love people in those moments. May we remember how you've loved us when it's hard to love us too. May we not just love those who love us, those who, who make us feel good, but may we more and more through the power of your Holy Spirit be those who can show love to a, a lost and hurting world 
May you take this little church here, Little Hills Church, and the, the larger body of believers in, in St. Charles and in the St. Louis area and in the United States and in the world, would you take all of us and would you help us to love those whom you love? That is to say, to love each person in this world, to see each person as someone made in your image, someone who either knows you and is experiencing your grace or someone who desperately needs to know you. And would you use us to be agents of your transformation? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.